One Week Season. fam the nation my dudes and dudettes week nine nfl 2021 holy smokes dude we are about to be more than halfway done with the regular season that is pretty crazy to think about week nine slate what do we got going on here this slate here actually i'll start it like this this slate is super unique dude (laughs) (laughs) sorry i had to uh but yeah like there the The macro state of this slate, we basically have too much perceived value to even know what to do with, with all everything from COVID issues, from injuries to people driving too fast and doing stupid shit. Um, There are, there are a lot of teams who are going to be playing shorthanded. There are a lot of teams who are opening up opportunities for players that we don't usually target. And it is going to be basically a slate where people are going to, struggle to to figure out where to spend their salary i went into how i viewed that shaking out in the end around if you haven't read that out or if you haven't read that yet that came out this morning i uh, highly recommend you do so that said like it's this weird slate where i think people are gonna feel super comfy they're gonna feel super comfy with their rosters they're gonna feel super comfy with all the salary that they have and that's gonna create an interesting dynamic that we are going to dissect ad nauseum that being said, my main man, my typical co-host, Zandamir. How are you doing today, bud? Other than tilting PJ Dozier, of all things, I'm doing great. Um, yeah, that was a loaded question. It's a fun weekend. We had a great Halloween last weekend. My daughter got way too much candy and ate it until she didn't feel good. But that's like a rite of passage for children growing up. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good week. Um feels weird that we're like already at the halfway point of the season. Um, but I feel like I say that every season. So yeah, it goes, truly, by, it goes by too fast. It truly does, man. Um, it feels like we, we woke up and I guess I, we fell asleep. We blinked, whatever, how you ever want to put it. And we, we were like two seconds ago doing our first podcast together of the year. And now we're halfway there. So pretty crazy. Um, yeah, we know kind of how the results have been up and down throughout the season, but we are still at it. We are here to make the most plus EV plays that we can, uh, for the duration of the season. That said, man, what are you seeing from a macro perspective this week? Yeah, there's two things that jump out at me. One is that it's sort of similar to last week with one key difference. Um, in that like last week, if you remember back, there wasn't a key game that was attracting all the ownership. Like there wasn't the best game on the slate that everyone was stacking. There was the best game on the slate, which we talked about, which was Colts Titans. Um, But ownership kind of fell away from that game. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, But this week there's no, like there's no game stack game or or no obvious game stack game, right? There's no game with like, you know, a a total that's three or four points higher than everything else that everyone's going to concentrate on. It would have been Packers uh, chiefs, but as you pointed out um, of all the things I never thought were going to impact, you know, the DFS uh, world that we play in the sort of the bad life decision area is, um, is apparently rearing its head and we have to contend with that. So Packers chiefs got knocked down. I mean, it's still viable. But there's no clear best game. 
And so that means ownership is going to spread out a lot. Um, <clears throat> and it also means not just is ownership going to spread out, but <clears throat> we're going to see a lot of rosters that have um, minimal correlation because we talked about this last week too, right? Like when there's not a lot of uh, great game environments or what people perceive as great game environments, that tends to spread out ownership and people build like a quarterback and, a, and one pass catcher. And maybe they bring someone back from that, but maybe they don't if they're playing like Josh Owl with Steph Diggs or one of those you know, projected blowout games. Uh, and so then they're just building rosters that have to get a lot of individual things right. And those that's just much harder to do. Right. Like the reason why we correlate is not to raise our ceilings um, of our rosters. It's to mean that we have to get it's to, it's to have to get fewer things right in order to win. And uh, when you're trying to build rosters that are just sort of throwing darts at individual plays, even if you build a roster with all, quote unquote, good plays, uh, you just have to get a lot more right. And the second thing um, is just from a roster construction standpoint, we have a what I think is a very clear um, on DraftKings pay down at tight end, pay down at defense, um, pay up at running back, pay up at quarterback structure. Um, and I think running back is really the most interesting one there because I think people are paying up for what they perceive as uh, safety. Um, and as JM wrote about in a lot of detail <clears throat> around guys like Ezekiel Elliott um, and Nick Chubb, the safety may not be there. These these top running back plays uh, might not be as safe as people perceive. But I think that we're going to have a lot of, you know, and I say pay up. I'm looking at the DraftKings salary structure, and I think it's, you know, low sixes and up. Um, it's what I'm, I'm defining as pay up this week because there's like there's no running back over 8,200 as Alvin Kamara. Um, and there's but there's not a lot of value running backs that people are are expressing confidence in um, outside of Miles Gaskin and some Devonta Booker. There's just not a lot of ownership on the low priced running back. So it's a pay up at running back, pay down tight end, pay down defense, pay up quarterback, fill in at wide receiver. And I think that creates a lot of angles we can use to, to attack the slate cleverly. Yeah. Just to confirm you have not <laughs> read the end around yet, correct? Uh, no, I was, I've been playing with the kiddo. We had a, we had a, uh, we had a kiddo play date today of all things. No, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I say that not to like publicly shame you for not reading my stuff. It's to, <laughs> it's to how uh, dare you? Yeah, right. It's to highlight the fact that we're arriving at similar conclusions with respect to the macro state of the slate um, separately. And before we talk, like X and I don't talk before we do these. So all everything that comes out in these discussions is a, I guess, a path from. X and I individually that is coming together to bring these ideas out in podcast form. And so when, for those who have read the end around, you probably were saying, Oh, that's pretty much what Hilo said in the end around. So it's interesting. And I, whatever conclusion we come to is interesting, right? It, whether we arrive at the same conclusion or not, I mean, the, the ideas and the different perspectives from two individuals are always going to be valuable. Um, particularly talking about a sport like DFS, where there's so many different ways, um, you know, to abide by the prescribed rules and come to what you see as the highest EV roster. So that being said, I'm seeing the slate pretty much the same way you are X um, wrote up in the end around that it is likely like I kind of alluded to earlier, it is likely that people are going to be searching for ways to spend their salary. And what is the most likely 
you know, path for them to take is, is seek safety. And the safety, the perceived safety is to pay up at running back and pay up at quarterback. We talked about, um, you know, through the, the multitude of courses, through the teachings across the site, that those are the two lowest variance positions. So it's, it's very interesting and it's very comfortable um, when you have a dynamic, a slate that has this dynamic where, you know, people are looking for comfort. They're looking for safety. It's very easy to revert to paying up at, paying up at quarterback. That said, we also have the tight end position where the best value on paper on the slate is Albert, um, um, Albert O. And he is priced at two points. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to do that again. He's priced at 2.6. He is the top value on paper on the slate, hands down, bar none. So we're going to see ownership congregate there. We're going to see ownership congregate at the mid-range in wide receivers. And why is that? Well, that's where all these perceived value plays are coming from, from all these you know, different reasons for people missing games this week. So that being said, like X said, there is an interesting angle or multiple angles where we can take to ensure that our rosters are built in a different fashion, in a different manner, without making suboptimal plays. We'll be jumping into that here shortly. Sorry, pause break to clear the old throat. Uh, but yeah, I'm actually, hopefully the sound quality is okay. I'm coming to you from my truck. Um, typically, well, we all know by now I'm, I'm doing multiple things. One of those things is the reserves. And another thing layer is uh, that I am part of the military funeral honors unit for Phoenix. I'm drilling this weekend and typically they don't like to schedule you for funerals when you are drilling because you can't double dip. You can't get paid for both, basically. Um, that said, we had a funeral and we, had, we were shorthanded on the funeral unit today. So I volunteered to do it. And that is why I have been out of the house all day. And I am coming to you from my truck somewhere in Goodyear, Arizona. No idea. All right. That's the story. That's the behind the scenes. Hopefully the sound quality is okay. I got all my equipment with me, which is kind of funny. Uh, parked at like a bank parking lot with my headset. Hilo is the world's busiest man. <laughs> it appears that way. But dude, I everything I do, I do from home, which is what I wanted leaving the military active duty. So I like, regardless of how busy it seems, I am like I'm home with my kids and that's really all that matters to me. All right. That's sweet. <laughs> oh, dear. Sad, sad. Panda. <laughs> all right. Well, let's jump into this. I want to start at the running back position this week because I feel like that is the one pos- or the position where I think most mistakes are going to be made this week. And I say that in the sense that people are going to perceive too much certainty at the running back position specifically. And before I get your thoughts, I actually want to bring in a guest speaker for this week. Um, And he is somebody that not many of you know. No, I'm just kidding. He's somebody that everybody knows. It is Todd. Todd, if you could, I'm going to invite you to speak. Accept that bad boy. And come on up. And I want the crowd to hear your thoughts on the running back position first before X and I give a crack at it. Because Todd and I spoke uh, earlier today and I pretty much liked what I heard so much uh, from Todd's ideas that 
I wanted him to come up and tell everybody as opposed to me kind of regurgitating what he said. So Todd, if you could accept that uh, invite to speak, come on up and uh, we'll hear you talk about the running back position real quick. All right. <laughs> well, that was anticlimactic. Oh, there he is. There he I was is. excited yeah. about Todd. Yes, sir. Todd. Todd, 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 Todd. Hopefully he gets this worked out. He is old too, so he might have issues with uh, <laughs> he might have issues with technology. I was gonna see if I could unmute him, but I can't. This is very anticlimactic. Yeah, right. Man, after that awesome lead up, dude. Come on. All right. Well, while Todd works through that, as opposed to waiting for that to happen, we're going to talk about the running back position. I'm going to go over to you. What are you seeing from the macro perspective from the running back position this week? Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit already, right? It's it's a pay-up week. Um, there's not a lot of perceived running back value. Uh, there's a couple exceptions to that, which we'll get to. Um it's a week where people seem like they're going to be paying up and like most of the ownership is concentrated uh, in the like 6K and above range. And so like <clears throat> it's Ezekiel Elliott, it's Austin Eckler, it's Alvin Kamara, it's Cordell Patterson, it's Dick Chubb, um, some ownership on a couple of the cheaper guys like Miles Gaskin, um, Devonta Booker. But I think, as you said, right, it's people are trying to find certainty and safety um and i think there's part of it is about the week itself and i think part of it is about uh, that reaction is about uh the changing running back roles we're seeing in the nfl where the days of teams you know coming out with these like 20 plus touch three down back roles i I don't want to say they're behind us but they're much less common than they used to be right like it's pretty rare for a team's running back to see to exceed 25 touches and if you know when you say 20 touch running back that doesn't mean can they get to 20 that means are they usually at 20 and it's pretty rare to see that anymore i haven't actually gone and looked um this year and seen how many running backs are averaging 20 touches a game Um, but i'm pretty comfortable saying if i did go to look that number would be low um, and you know, like Aaron Jones, not a bell cow, not a 20 plus touchback. Kamara has been, but the past game work's been up and down. Eckler, you know, has gotten there, but not regularly. Even like Ezekiel Elliott, who is a bell cow for a long time, has been splitting work with. Can you hear me? Oh, hi, Todd. Um, hey, we got you, brother. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Thought. Yeah. Let me just finish this thought and we'll bounce over <laughs> oh, to you. Sorry. Okay. We finally um, got it. So that's cool. Okay. Yeah, Zeke, uh, you know, Zeke for a long time was a bell cow, but he's now been splitting more work with Tony Pollard. He's still the lead back. But, you know, the days of like these bell cow backs who could push for 25 plus, you know, 30 touches, uh, those are exceedingly rare. And so I think that that's causing people to sort of lock on to the relatively small handful of high workload backs out there um, as the as the you know, as the perceived safe plays, the perceived safe volume plays. Um, And I think that's causing people to sort of overlook the more volatile backs 
where guy there are guys whose workloads are more volatile and their upside is still strong, um, but the floor is scary. And so, you know, those are guys like um, Zach Moss might fit into that boat. I don't know. Chase Edmonds, um, uh, Dalvin Cook, uh, I think this week is going to kind of fit into that boat. Joe Mixon. And I'm not saying these guys are great plays necessarily. I'm just saying that, like, these are the running backs that people are shying away from because of perceived uncertainty around their their role. Um, James Robinson. Uh, coming off of an injury like uh, the era, the the San Francisco running back situation is is pretty volatile this week and people are kind of shying away from that. So what I see is like the sort of their the flight to safety. Um, people are looking for where they find safety at the position. And uh, and I think that the safety at the running back position is is not what it used to be. Right. Like it used to be that you could pay up for these like the high priced, high volume bell cow backs, and you're guaranteeing yourself 20 plus touches with significant pass game work. Um, for anyone who remembers the team jam them in of a few years ago, when uh, you just start your lineups with Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson, because they would score 20 plus DraftKings points every single week and would often go for like 30 plus at a high, high frequency. We we just don't see that anymore. But I think people are still kind of chasing. They want that. People are chasing that. And I think that's causing them to uh, believe there's more certainty than there really is in some of these running back plays. All right, I love Todd. it, man. I, can't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Todd, over to you, brother. I want to hear what your thoughts are on the running back position this week. Well, I'm always really grateful to be able to join a man who has more fingers on his left hand than he plays lineups in high-low. So um, thank you for having me on. And, uh, you know, I agree with what um, X said in a macro perspective. I, I, but there are two names that are, are set up that are more... Exp- and, and I think that those... You know, JM started the week by talking about how weak the running back position is a, as a whole. So one thing I'm going to be doing is greatly limiting my pool of running backs. And I don't feel like any of those guys in the lower, other than Chase Edmonds at the lower salaries, really have that good of a chance of being successful, right? I think with Kyler either limited or out, Chase Edmonds is a decent play. But there's uh, two running backs that, are higher priced that have very low ownership compared to what they can have. One is Dalvin Cook and one is Aaron Jones. And I think both are being under the radar a little bit. So uh, before I go into that, I want to talk a little bit about best ball and best ball strategy and Justin Herzig's strategy. Um, he won, you know, he was pretty famous for his uh, four running back best ball strategy last year. But one of the points that people miss about that strategy, it's all about taking really good running backs. Um, most of the time in that theory, as he related to me on my podcast, he's done with those four running backs by the eighth round. So let's transfer that over to today. We've got Zeke. We've got Eckler. Um, we've got Dalvin, we've got Aaron Jones. Um, so there's four guys, and Nick Chubb, I think, is in that conversation as well. Alvin Kamara is looking at 16% ownership. 
So I think by playing one or both of Dalvin and Aaron Jones, you're not only getting a pretty darn good floor, but you're getting a ceiling that you're just not going to get from some of these other guys. So I feel like if you make lineups and you really limit it with the upper end guys, um, and instead of playing the chalk upper end quarterbacks with that, which, as X mentioned, is going to be the build. Uh, one guy that has very low ownership is Dak Prescott, um, and he gives you leverage on one of the chalk running backs. If Dak goes off, it's very likely that Zeke doesn't. Um, even though Amari and Albert are both um, chalky, what you can do is you can make, you know, with, with Dak's ownership being about 5 6%, that alone is going to make you pretty different. And then there's a lot of other ways that you can make lineups that narrow it down even further. Then you have some really good uh, correlations that you can mix in with your lineup. T. Higgins and Jarvis Landry, Kadarius Toney and Hunter Renfro. Um, and I think by building like that, and using Justin's theory, if you play five or six of these upper-end running backs and you play them together and you mix it up in other areas to differentiate, I think you're making really strong lineups and giving yourself both the solid floor and the, the ceiling that JM always talks about. I like it, man. I'm going to merge these two ideas and do the best that I can. and try and take both of these ideas uh, and relay them in a digestible fashion. Now, Todd, appreciate it, man. That was awesome. Uh, it was good to have you back here, man. And I, <laughs> No worries, to, guys. Oh, and X, I got to hear what X thinks about Devontae Booker after our conversation last time. So um, check in out, and uh, I'll see you on the uh, recap pod on uh, Tuesday, Hila. Yes, sir, brother. Thanks, man. Can I just throw out that uh, someone in the chat said that Todd sounds like John Malkovich, which I think is a phenomenal compliment. Oh, yeah. I see it now, too. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, that's one of the uh, the perils of doing this um, from a phone this week is I can't really pull up the chat as well, uh, which is a bummer. Um, anyway, so trying to bring both of those ideas, and this is kind of what, led me to how I'm now seeing the running back position this week because I was very aligned with X's, um, how he's seeing this position and then talking to Todd and taking those, uh, that perspective and coming to like, it, it was a little bit eye opening for me this morning coming to this realization that although the field is going to want to pay up at the running back position this week based on expected ownership percentages that we're seeing currently they're doing so with a high level of certainty with respect to where the top plays in, honestly are coming from my top plays i'm going to digress a little bit until i come back to that idea my top plays on paper in a vacuum this week at the running back position, and I know we don't usually do this, but I, I think the running back position is so important this week. My top plays are Austin Eckler and Devontae Booker. Eckler, I talked uh, a lot about in the end around as one of the chalk pieces. Um, you know, he the the weakness of the Eagles defense is their linebackers and coverage. 
We also have Justin Jefferson, who, or not Justin Jefferson, Justin Jackson, the other Justin, uh, equally as good looking. Just kidding. Uh, sorry. Um, lost my train of thought there. Who is going to miss this game? We have a Chargers team who likes to rely on the running backs in the past game. Austin Eckler has seen the fourth most targets uh, from the running back position in the league. He's done so with one fewer games than two of the three players ahead of him on par uh, with Swift, who has had his bye. We also have a Chargers team who we know likes to target the running back position. Austin Eckler has seen all but nine running back targets for the Chargers this season. Justin Jackson, who is going to miss this week, has seen seven of those nine non-Austin Eckler running back targets. So we have this whole, we also have a team in the Chargers who is, you know, top four on the slate for Vegas implied team total. So we have all these things working for us for Eckler, where he is a perfect, you know, harmoniously, harmonious mix of expected workload of expected um, Vegas implied team total. So we know that the Chargers are going to score of expected red zone usage of all these things. You know, he scored eight touchdowns in his seven games played. We know he's a high, um, a high contributing member of this offense in the red zones. So that is the case for Austin Eckler. That is who I think of the chalk this week is the likeliest to provide a top end GPP worthy score. Down to Devontae Booker. I talked ad nauseum about him in the end around as well. How the Vegas, you know, the Las Vegas Raiders are in shambles right now. They've had all these issues with their head coach, who is now gone, their, you know, star, their number one wide receiver, who has, you know, his issues off the field are clear and evident. I'm not going to speak to that anymore um, because I think he's a dipshit. Uh, we have all these issues surrounding the Raiders. And we look at what they've done previously. Four of their seven games this season have gone for over or for 55 points or more. So not only are the Raiders putting up points, but they're harboring and fostering a game environment where their opponents are putting up points. We get Devontae Booker now, who has averaged 83% of the offensive snaps over the last four weeks. That um, lines up for when Saquon Barkley has been out. He was all the way up to like 93% snap rate last week. He is a near lock for 18 to 22 running back opportunities. And the Raiders have surrendered 83% red zone touchdown rate on the season. That is tied for the line or with the Lions for the last in the league. So 83% of opponent red zone trips result in a touchdown. We look at the Giants' tendencies in the red zone. They're basically a neutral offense pass rush rates. So Devontae Booker brings an elevated touchdown expectancy to the table, and he's scored three touchdowns over the last four weeks with Saquon Barkley out. So he is a solid mix of this price to expected range of outcome, um, and he is the running back who I would be most comfortable with paying down. So that being said, that is where I started the week at. Those two running backs, extremely narrow running back pool. Talking to Todd, though, we have three or four running backs in the high echelon, highest tier of pricing that are expected to not garner much ownership. We also have Christian McCaffrey coming back, who, you know, we 
he just got activated today uh, at the deadline for this game. And he is sure to shake up the expected ownership numbers for this slate overall. So we have this case where the field is showing such a high level, uh, a high degree of certainty behind Austin Eckler, behind uh, Ezekiel Elliott, who I spoke to as well in the end around. So we won't get into that again. Um, and around Miles Gaskin. So what, in my eyes now, how am I seeing the running back position? Well, we have this Joe Schmo named Dalvin Cook, who is priced at 7700 the cheapest he has been um, in a while, save his last game uh, against Dallas, where he was priced at 7.3. But this is a guy who started the year priced at 9.1. He's also a running back who we've seen his pass game involvement almost all the way dry up. He is in a matchup against a difficult Baltimore defense to run against. That said, their primary run stopper, Brandon Williams, is... Current list is questionable. He got in a limited session on Friday after two DNPs. He has missed one game this season. It was against the Detroit Lions. In that game, Swift and Jamal Williams combined for like 26 rush attempts and seven targets, all of them going to Swift. They put up 89 rush yards and two rushing scores, and Swift went. Seven catches for 60 yards. So that backfield, a pretty horrendous on-paper backfield, put up that level of production against this Ravens defense missing Brandon Williams. So if he misses, I am highly interested in Dalvin Cook at likely low ownership priced right under Austin Eckler and Christian McCaffrey. We also have... Alvin Kamara, who is basically not being shown the time of day this week. And we start to piece through the overall macro state of the slate and really hone in on like, who are the running backs that can score 35 to 40 fantasy points? I would contend that Ezekiel Elliott is not on that list. I would contend that Joe Mixon is not on that list. I would contend that Nick Chubb is not on that list. So we're basically left with Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, Austin Eckler is on that list. Dalvin Cook is on that list. And the last guy I want to talk about is Aaron Jones. What is going on with the Packers this week? Okay, obviously we have this whole saga around COVID and how he feels about COVID and the shot and the mask, whatever. We're not going to get into that around Aaron Rodgers. Who is going to miss this game? We have Jordan Love coming in for his first professional start. We have a, a coaching staff headed by uh, LaFleur, who we know are extremely smart and football savvy, and they are going to do whatever they can to put their team in the best position to win football games, because that is what they, he was brought in to do. It is basically Super Bowl or bust for Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers this year, because Aaron Rodgers is likely leaving Green Bay. So they know that this is their last chance to do that. He is going to do whatever he can to put his team in the best position to succeed. So with all of this going around, we also have the news of all three of the top wide receivers for Green Bay returning. So what is all that combined for me? Well, if I'm sitting in Matt LaFleur's shoes, I am highly likely to want to lean on where what gives my team the best position to win this week is through Aaron Jones. What does that do? 
he is one of your most skilled players. It keeps the ball out of Patrick Mahomes' hands, and it allows you to slow the game down and give Patrick Mahomes less possessions and less offensive plays. I'm also going to tailor my defense to limit downfield passing attacks and splash plays, and that will also, again, lead to a a game environment which is likeliest to work in Aaron Jones' favor. We look at how the field is viewing this game. The field is viewing this game as the Packers are either going to get stomped or Jordan Love is going to have a, you know, as JM put it, a, a game that is going to be talked about come Monday. There's no in-between, right? There, it's either the Packers are going to fall on their face or Jordan Love is going to come out and give the Packers a chance to win this game. I contend that the best way for the Packers to win this game is through Aaron Jones. And we've seen he has a game this year already where he's put up 41 fantasy points. So we know the ceiling is there. When we start looking at the ownership on some of these guys we talked about, Alvin Kamara, you know, sub 8, 10%, something around there. Christian McCaffrey, he's going to have ownership now that he has been uh, activated and will be uh, playing in this game. Austin Eckler, we know his ownership is going to be high, but he is my pick for chalk likeliest to hit Dalvin cook down in the six to 8% range, Aaron Jones, even less than that. So there's these five core uh, running backs, two of which are expected to garner ownership in Christian McCaffrey and Austin Eckler, but the field is going to be paying up at other places for their higher perceived median outcome. And we're not concerned about median outcome, right? We're trying to win GPPs or trying to take down large field contests. So all of that for me comes together to put me in a place where I am likely to not want to pay down at the position because there really are no options for me personally outside of Devontae Booker. It also raises an interesting point, I think, for this week where the field has been drifting further and further away from placing running back in flex. And I think this is the perfect slate to kind of bring that back and target these highest ceiling running backs when the field is not going to, and maybe even three of them. It can be done. I've been playing around with rosters, and I found rosters where I can play three of these pay-up running backs and still feel comfortable with the rest. So that was a lot, but that is a way to differentiate smartly where the field is likely not going to be on. They're likely to be paying up or, you know, two running backs in the 6K or above range because we have a lack of value options on the slate. There's really no point in trying to find like the, the two guys in the pay down range who can, we can catch lightning in a bottle as we saw last week. So to me, I'm much more likely to pay up times two at running back but do so in ways that the field is not and attacking these guys, particularly where we know very high levels of talent and are being slept on by the field. X with all that being said, trying to tie in you and Todd's thoughts. How, what is your reaction to that? I just fell asleep. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So like one of my sort of, one of my core tournament philosophies is, set aside matchup 
set aside the sort of the negatives, the, the stories of how a guy could fail because any player can fail and just think about what's a guy's ceiling. Like what, what, what ceiling, uh, in, if everything goes right for a player, what can they hit? Right. And we know, we know what Aaron Jones' ceiling is. We've seen it multiple times before. We know what Dalvin Cook's ceiling is. We know what Zeke's ceiling is. We know what Kamara and Eckler's ceilings are. So I agree with you about Zeke. I don't think he has a 30 plus point ceiling anymore. Um, I mean, could he feasibly run for a hundred yards and two touchdowns and add a few catches? He could, but I think that that's given how we've seen that the Cowboys use him. That is a fairly unlikely outcome. Um, and, you know, and then once you have your, your list of guys who have, you know, legitimately amazing ceilings, then oh, look at who of them is going to be low owned, right? Like I will always play guys who have 30 plus point ceilings when they're coming in at low ownership, because, you know, that's, that's how you win tournaments is you get those giant performances. And I'm not talking Michael Carter last week who went, you know, absolutely berserk. I don't think anyone would have said he had that kind of ceiling. Um, he, he did last week. Uh, but, um, you know, as a 90th percentile outcome, uh, that was that was not, I think, what we planned for him or anyone thought was feasible. Um, but like, you know, the guys that have feeling when you can really view a 30 plus point ceiling for a player and the field's not going to play them like those are core tournament plays for me. Those are plays I always want to be overweight on. Um, I do want to mention Booker because <clears throat> I was on record a couple of weeks ago as saying don't play Booker. Um, and this was the, his first week as lead back. Uh, starting as lead back, right? He took over in the Dallas game in week five. Uh, he scored two touchdowns. <clears throat> he got 20.8 DraftKings points. Um, and then week six and seven, he came in at pretty high ownership. And I was saying, don't play him um, because A, when, you know, what we've seen from him is, <clears throat> is he scored two touchdowns and only, and still only got to like 20 DraftKings points, which isn't the kind of ceiling we need to win tournaments, um, especially if he's going to be super highly owned. And that's his like best possible outcome is two touchdowns. Um, <clears throat> and then he did not have, you know, big games there. But then I think what's, so I guess the question here is what's different, right? Why, why am I now interested in Booker? Uh, when I wasn't before. And there's two reasons. One is that poor Giants offense just keeps thinning out. They're they're just their receivers are dropping like flies. And so that means, you know, more that means likely more opportunity for Booker, more pass game opportunity for Booker. And we saw him hit his season high in targets last week with six. Uh, and also the matchup is different, right? In week six and seven, when people were looking for a cheap, you know, bell cow running back which Booker was, but he was in more difficult matchups against the Rams uh, who were likely to just absolutely blow the giants out and the Panthers who'd been playing pretty sound defense this year, at least, you know, average to better than average. Then week eight, he played Kansas city, which is a bad defense, especially, you know, just well bad all around. Um, and then now he gets the Raiders who have not been a good defense, especially against running backs, especially against running backs out of the backfield. So my perspective on Booker is different now than it was uh, a couple weeks ago. I also want to note that like we're talking about chalk and ownership at running back. Like I think it's, you know, I've said before that I think it's rare these days for uh, really objectively poor chalk to develop um, because the field is pretty good at identifying strong plays in a vacuum, right? Like uh, the field's gotten pretty solid at identifying good plays. And so it's rare to have like just objectively poor chalk on a slate. Um, but I will say, I think at running back this week, there are a couple of objectively poor chalk plays. And I will say one of them um, is Miles Gaskin, 
And I think people are latching on to like, it's against Houston. They're terrible. And yes, they are. Um, Houston is terrible. But Miles Gaskin, like I think people are projecting his role is suddenly going to expand and because Malcolm Brown is out, but Malcolm Brown has not been stealing a ton of usage. And, you know, they still have multiple backs on that roster. Mike, Mike, Miles Gaskin has 66 carries on the year in eight games. Like he's averaging under 10 carries a game. He's averaging five targets a game, which is nice. Um, but those are also disproportionately coming in games where they're behind, which they're unlikely to be. Uh, the, the majority of Gaskin's pass game work is coming in games where they've fallen significantly behind. Um, so, you know, a reasonable workload projection for Gaskin here is 10 to 12 carries and two to three targets, which does not scream like third highest on back on the slate to me. And I think Ezekiel Elliott is kind of an objectively bad chalk play. Not that I think Zeke is likely to fail. Um, you know, I think he's a fair play. I guess 7K, like is a home favorite running back. You get some pass game work, but he's 7K. So he's still fairly expensive. He's not cheap. He's the highest. He's projected at the highest ownership of any running back on the slate right now. And though I think he's more of a high floor, you know, but only kind of moderate ceiling play. And to me, that's not the kind of play that I want to be like all in on in tournaments. And so I think that this is an unusual week at running back where, uh, there actually is some of what I would consider objectively poor chalk. I will also throw out Cordell Patterson is what I think is objectively poor chalk. Um, Atlanta, New Orleans, Patterson's projected for 15% ownership, so not the highest, but I think he's like fourth or fifth highest. And, you know, 6,300 for Patterson. He's likely to have very little room to run. Um, you know, the Saints are one of the toughest running back matchups. He'll get his pass game work, and he has that. But he's been living off of incredible pass game efficiency and, and touchdowns. And, you know, Ridley being out is not necessarily a boost to him, as we saw last week, right? When you take the best offensive player out of an offense, that doesn't necessarily mean all the other guys just go way up in projection. All of a sudden, they're great plays. It also increases the chance of that offense just floundering. And... You know, going up against one of the league's premier defenses on the road with essentially two decent offensive weapons in Patterson and Ridley, or sorry, Patterson and Pitts, and then, you know, some kind of scrubby type, you know, guys like Gage and Tajay Sharp and Mike Davis. Oh, Mike Davis, my best ball shares. Um, it's just, it's hard for me to get behind Patterson early ownership. So I actually think this is an interesting week where there is objectively poor chalk. And that's exciting to me. I really want to lean into that. Um, if we're kind of finishing up running back, I will just throw out a couple guys, a couple more names that I think are worth considering. And one of them is is, is an ownership play, purely an ownership play, which is Daryl Williams, who I think is kind of similar to Devonta Booker, kind of in that he's sort of a, you know, he's not an explosive player. He's not, he isn't, he has essentially zero chance of rushing for, you know, an 80 yard touchdown. Um, he's kind of averaging like about four yards a carry or a little under four yards a carry, kind of where Booker is. But his pass game work's been solid. The Chiefs are, you know, looking for um, more, uh, you know, more, more, more weapons in their offense. So I think the role is solid. There's that, you know, wasn't Derek Gore who got a few carries last game and that creates some risk. Um, but the risk also is what's lowering his ownership. I mean, today, Daryl Williams is a down running back who gets pass game work as a large home favorite in a good matchup. And sometimes it's it's just that simple. And so I don't think he's a guy I would lock by any means, but he's projected for like four to five percent ownership, which seems 
uh, to low to me. And, and again, I'm just going to tout Yahoo again, because Yahoo's doing that giant guaranteed overlay tournament with 25% guaranteed overlay. And so I'm doing MME again this week. And I'm not normally a big MME player, but I will when there's that kind of overlay. And, you know, I, he's not a guy that I want 50% of, but I think he's a guy I want to be comfortably overweight the field if, he, if he's going to be 5%. And then I also think there's two other positions, uh, two other running back areas I think are interesting to me. One is the San Francisco running game, um, because we have this kind of unclear situation where Elijah Mitchell is questionable. Um, we have, uh, what's his name? Jeff Wilson activated off injured reserve, but it kind of seemed like Jeff Wilson wasn't fully ready. Like it seemed like they weren't expecting to activate him off of injured reserve. So I don't know how much work he's going to get. And then we've got Jamichael Hasty and if all of them are active, I'm not super interested in that spot. But if one of them is inactive, uh, then I think that spot is really interesting, especially if Kyler Murray is out. Um, George Kittle's back, and that has enormous implications for the 49ers run game. He's like the, he's the best run blocking tight end in the league and one of the best overall run blockers in the league. Um, so you know him being back is huge for their run game. If Kyler's not back, if Kyler misses then it's you know it's likely this is going to be a much closer game and San Francisco is probably even favored without Kyler active um and you know we could see Mitchell being out or Wilson not Bill Wilson being you know activated from IR but sort of in a like glass glass case in case of emergency sort of play um and so i think there's a lot of opportunity in that backfield uh, if if Mitchell misses, I think you can take shots on Hasty or Wilson, and it's kind of like that. You know, there's a lot of risk there, but this is the sort of embrace volatility when it comes at no ownership. Um, and then again, another area where I think you can embrace volatility at near zero ownership um, is the Philly backfield, where you know we saw Boston Scott as the lead runner early in the game. Um, you know, Jordan Howard has some touchdown vulture potential, yes. But, you know, Scott was clearly the lead guy early in the game. And then the Lions just didn't do anything. And Philly just kind of ran away with it. And I think, you know, Jordan Howard got a couple of rushing touchdowns. And I don't even know how the rest of the Philly points were scored. Scored 40-something points. And, like, I have no idea what even happened in that game because Hurt scored nothing. Um, but, you know, Scott has – I think Scott has legitimate – ceiling if he runs as the lead back and he's projecting at near zero ownership this week and so again these are not strong plays these are not plays that i want that i have a high degree of conviction in that i want to go all in on um but i think that when you look at where the field is going with like the field is taking a high degree of confidence and, and like miles gaskin um, where I think that there shouldn't that that's a highly volatile play to me. I don't think you can have a high degree of confidence in Miles Gaskin's role here. Um, and I think that if I'm going to play a cheap running back where there isn't a high degree of confidence, where it's a high degree of volatility, uh, I want to do that at low ownership, not at high ownership. And so instead of like instead of Miles Gaskin, I would rather play guys like you know I'd rather attack like the San Francisco backfield or Darrell or um, or Boston Scott. I think that's basically everything I have to say about running back. Whew. I love it. I'm going to tie the bow real quick on the running back position, talking about two spots where uh, one is high leverage and the other is with Ezekiel Elliott. So going back to what X talked about, about the San Francisco running back situation, we have a game where there's a lot of moving pieces still. So we kind of have to read the tea leaves a little bit. And it's difficult because it's a late, uh, late an afternoon kickoff. So there's only three afternoon games this week, and that is one of them. So what does that do? That does two things. It lowers ownership on all players surrounding the 
many the numerous moving pieces. So pretty much all of the Cardinals defense and pretty much uh, the running back situation with respect to the San Francisco uh, 49ers. It also makes it extremely difficult to build rosters to be able to pivot because the players in this game are at the extremes. We have uh, the only player who's priced in a mid-range is George Kittle. We have Debo Samuel, who has a calf injury, who is priced as a top five wide receiver. We have a the running back position for the San Francisco 49ers, who they are all priced down. We have Kyler Murray, obviously, who's priced up. We have DeAndre Hopkins, who is also questionable, uh, who is with a hamstring injury, who is priced up. The rest of the Cardinals offense are all priced down. So this gives us this weird dynamic. And we also don't have other afternoon games um, where there are viable pivots from any of those plays. So we get an interesting dynamic where a lot of the volatility with respect to those two individual spots is mitigated some by the extremely low ownership we're going to expect from players from those games or from that game from those teams. So to me, again, I guess expanding this idea further, we have to read the tea leaves a little bit with respect to San Francisco and their backfield situation. To me, it sounds, I agree with X, it sounds like Wilson was not fully ready to come back off of IR, and there were rumblings that he would be on hand to be activated should Elijah Mitchell not be ready to go. So he was activated. He's re- Jeff Wilson was activated. He is going to be on addressed for this game. To me, that says that Eli Mitchell is probably closer to the no longer in existence doubtful designation. He is probably closer to not playing than he is to playing. So now we have Jeff Wilson. We have Trey Sermon, who's likely going to be active. But we know kind of how far deep, deep, deep down into the doghouse of Shanahan that he is. And we have the guy who is most intriguing to me, and that is Jamichael Hasty. So if... Kyler Murray misses if DeAndre Hopkins misses it. We have this Arizona offense who is now hamstrung, for lack of a better word. We have a San Francisco backfield where Elijah Mitchell is out. They have Trey Sermon, they have Jeff Wilson, and they have Jamichael Hasty. To me, it's likeliest we see San Francisco make Jamichael Hasty their feature back because of what we've seen them handle so far up to this point in the week. So Jamichael Hasty at 4K is super, super intriguing to me because there is a lack of pay down viability at the running back position this week. Nobody's going to be doing it. And then we start taking that one step further and come to the realization that like maybe there is a viable way to pay down times two at running back with Devontae Booker and and Jamichael Hasty. Super, super high variance play, super, super high volatility play. And there are a lot of unknowns between now and kickoff of the afternoon games uh, with respect to that play in particular. So do with that information what you will, knowing that the upside just might outweigh the unknowns and the high variance associated with that play because nobody is going to be on it. The last thing I'll talk about is Zeke 
And I think the field is clinging onto this 15 targets over his last two games. Well, what has happened in those last two games to change? Because he had seen a season high of three targets prior to uh, this eruption over the last two games and 15 targets. Well, in week six, the Cowboys played uh, a New England Patriots team who is uh, seeds pass game work to the running backs. And it limits, basically is built to limit or take away a off opposing offense's top weapons. Well, what are the top weapons? Yeah, they're going to focus. You can't really single out a top weapon for the Cowboys. They're harder to run on than they are to pass. So I think that's where we saw the spike in targets uh, in week six. Week eight, it was a game without Dak Prescott. We had Rush coming in at quarterback. It makes sense why his targets spiked to six. Furthermore, he's got 20 receptions on the season, only 128 receiving yards on those 20 receptions. You know, good for just over six yards per reception. That is pretty low for a running back in today's NFL game. So all of that comes together. That is the why behind the how of why X and I are both saying that Zeke might be one of the bigger traps at with respect to his raw ceiling uh, in this game in an extreme pace down matchup for the Dallas Cowboys. All right. I think we done beat that horse dead. Let us move over and talk about some game environments, and we will do so through the lens of some underappreciated, underowned uh, game environments that are mostly being written off by the field. X, I'm going to jump it back to you, brother. Oh, game environments. Um, so I'm kind of poking through ownership as we're talking about this, and I don't think there's any game that is really clumping a lot of ownership, which is super interesting to me. Um, Normally what we see is even if there's a lot of ownership on, even if there's not a game stack that's attracting ownership, we usually see one game where there's a condensed amount of ownership um, on a, on an offense. And like we've seen the Rams, right? We're like, the last few weeks, it's common for us to see a ton of ownership on Rams, um, but no, no, not like it's, but it's not on the game, right? It's just on the Rams side. And so like, if you actually add up ownership um, just by looking at, you know, the, who on the team is going to be owned, which is a fair way to do it, but it's kind of, it's, it's sort of a narrow lens. I think you've got, there's a lot of ownership on Dallas and Denver, but it's really concentrated in Ezekiel Elliott and Amari Cooper and in, and in Albert, um, whatever his last name is. Uh, Alberto. Then, we'll call him Alberto. Yeah, let's go with Berto. Um, and, then, and there's a lot of ownership on Cleveland, Cincinnati, where Chubb is attracting a, a decent chunk of ownership. And then we've got like T Higgins, Jarvis Landry, attracting a lot of ownership at wide receiver and then even like tyler boyd and jamar chase are attracting a decent chunk um oh sorry jerry judy actually decently owned in dallas denver as well so i actually think i think there's some opportunity even to consider those game environments but in different ways and so like well cleveland cincinnati is pretty high owned overall um but like you in dallas denver you could attack that game through CD Lamb instead of Amari Cooper or Zeke. And like, look, Amari Cooper is mispriced flat out. He's an awesome on-paper play. Um, and 
you know, people are playing playing a lot of Zeke and people are playing Jerry Judy and Albert, um, Alberto, um, but they're overlooking Cortland Sutton. And it's, in some cases, I think what is happening is they're they're overrating the matchup, or at least they're they're shying away from the matchup against like, you know, Travion Diggs, the interception king of the NFL. Um, and they're shying away from Lamb's price because Amari has a, you know, is a fairly similar projection, but at a much cheaper price. But you know, Lamb can Lamb could clearly be the one to go off. I mean, Amari has actually shown a higher ceiling than Lamb. He's a better play, um, but it's a one-game sample. Uh, Lamb could go off. You could target that game and build it in a different way by using Sutton instead of Albert or Judy, or you could use Lamb instead of using, um, you know, using Amari, or you could use, uh, you know, even Dalton Schultz, who apparently has shed the, uh, you know, pass blocking tight end while Blake Jarwin is the receiving tight end label. Um, so there's different ways to target that. Uh, I think Cleveland Cincinnati seems to have the highest overall ownership um, of, of individual plays, but even there we're not seeing a lot of ownership on Joe Burrow. So there's like a combined 40 plus percent ownership on Cleveland or sorry, on Cincinnati receivers, but Joe Burrow is projecting for like two or 3% ownership. And we've seen some big ceiling games from Burrow. Um, as uncomfortable as it is, we've seen some big ceiling games from Baker Mayfield too. And you say like, oh, well, Odell Beckham's gone. Baker, May- May- Baker Mayfield has actually been better without Odell Beckham. So I think you, you know, you can target that game as well. And you, j- but like, I think you want to target it by stacking it. So this goes back to a point I've made a few times in this podcast, which is when you see a whole bunch of ownership on a on the skill position players from a game, but the quarterbacks aren't coming in at any ownership. For me, the way I like to approach that is to either stack the game um, or avoid the game, right? Either I'm like, because the field is essentially trying to thread a fairly thin line saying, I bet one player from this game has a good game and I bet I can pick who that player is. And, you know, that's tough. So I'd rather either avoid the game entirely and hope no one has a huge game or I stack it and hope I get multiple big games. Um, Outside of that, I think. Uh, looking at ownership, I think there's a lot of opportunity on the Chargers, who overall, outside of Eckler, are coming in very low owned. You know, Justin Herbert's like four percent. Um, Mike Williams is low. Keenan Allen is pretty low. So I think there's opportunity there. Um, and then Philly, I wrote about this in the Oracle. Philly is an uncomfortable game stack because it's hard to figure out who to stack Hertz with. And I don't think you you could run him naked. Um, with a bring back from the Chargers or two as a much more concentrated offense, or you could take a risk and say, "Look, I don't. No one knows where these, where the, where the the hits going to come from, where the you know where the points are going to go on Philly." But that's why they're all so much lower owned because we don't have a high degree of confidence here in who's going to hit. Um, so I think you could play. I, I like playing that game a lot. Um, that's probably my favorite overall game to stack. Um, it's kind of the same thing with Baltimore, Minnesota, where we see Lamar with a lot of ownership. But again, like similarly to the Eagles, people don't like stacking the Ravens because they're a spread out offense, which is true. But you can still like you're not trying to think about median outcomes. You're trying to think about who could have a ceiling outcome here. And there's multiple guys on that offense who could have a ceiling outcome. And so you're kind of, yeah, you have to guess. You don't have a huge degree of certainty and like it's going to be the alpha receiver. It's going to be Devontae Adams for Green Bay. Um, you know, it's here. It could be, you know, Marquise Brown. It could be Mark Andrews. It could be Rashad Bateman. It, hell, it could be Sammy Watkins if he, if he plays. Um, so you have to embrace a little, a little more uncertainty. And the field shies away from uncertainty, right? They don't like it. And that's why ownership on those plays is so much lower. Um, but it's by embracing like 
we, we get paid to embrace the uncertainty by having lower ownership, right? If we knew where the ball was going on the feet on the Eagles or the Ravens, then we would see much higher ownership in those games. Um, so I think that you can kind of, you can, you're getting paid off for the uncertainty essentially. Um, I think those are really it. I like Vegas, uh, Vegas Giants, I think, is an attractive game to stack. Uh, there's going to be a lot of ownership there on Renfro, which is odd to me because I think his ceiling is really limited. Um, and on Tony, but I think outside of those guys, there's not a huge amount of ownership on that game. And so I think that's an interesting game to stack. As as, um, as Hilo mentioned, like we tend to see a lot of... Um, we tend to see a lot of... Uh, Where's I going with that? A lot of points in Raiders games. Duh. Um, sorry, my wife is pinging me going like, tell me what the hell you want for dinner so I can order it, please. Um, and I think that that's a game. I just got that, that text too. Yeah. And so that's a game that's interesting, right? Where there's people like the field's expressing a high degree of uncertainty in that game specifically of saying uh, Hunter Renfro is a good value play. Cool. Uh, Kadarius Tony is a good value play. Cool. Yes, he is. But outside of that, like we're not seeing a lot of ownership on Carr. Mod, you know, decent but modest ownership on Daniel Jones, and we're not seeing ownership on many of the other plays in that game. Like I hate Evan Ingram with the fire of a thousand suns, um, but like the Giants are thin at receiver. Um, you know, it it may not be Tony, um, and for the Raiders, it's honestly probably not Renfro who has a big ceiling performance. Like Renfro is much more of a floor play. So I think there's ways you can attack these games. Uh, in in ways that you can be different from the field smartly. And again, like one of the things Hilo pointed out, which I think is I'm in 100% agreement with, is this is a week where the field is going to spread out enough so that we can we don't have to dip down into super shaky plays to build really strong rosters. Sorry, I'll also call out actually uh, Miami Houston because Houston's terrible and Miami will be able to score at will. And um, and Tyrod Taylor being back is really good for Brandon Cooks, who has been still solid all year or for you know most of the year. Um, but now with Tyrod back, it that gives him a big boost. Phew. I love it, man. You hit my top three game environments on the weekend. Um, two of them I talked about in the end around, and that is Las Vegas and the Giants. We talk about that game. We already spoke to, you know, four of seven over 55 points for all Raiders games. The, I want to talk about the um, Houston and Miami game. These two defenses combined to allow over 806 yards from scrimmage per game. That is absurd, even in today's NFL. So we talk about a spot where we're likely to see the field primarily onesie twosie it, picking one-offs from this game. Like, Tyrod Taylor, Brandon Cooks, bring it back with either Mike Kosicki or Jalen Waddle, or even both, because that offense is supposed to be, you know, so concentrated this week. Like, it's going to go extremely low owned. Same thing for um, for Tua. I have concerns with Tua a little bit more than I think has been mentioned around the site this week because of the swelling on his throwing hand. That's a that's a big deal for an NFL quarterback you know, gripping a, gripping a pretty massive football. Um, so if he has swelling on his throwing hand, that leads me to doubt his ceiling a little bit more. Um, and it does not affect Gesicki and Waddle as much as I think it would for deeper downfield threats, because both of these guys are, are primarily working short to intermediate over, uh, areas of the field. So I still like the pass catchers 
I like Tua a little bit less, I think, than JM or than Sonic uh, that you've seen around the site this week. And that is the reason why. But I love that game environment. 800 and whatever, 807 total yards of combined offense per game uh, or that these two defenses allow. Uh, that is uh, that is noteworthy. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, love that game. Um, the last one is that I did not hit in the end around is the Chargers and Philly game. Uh, we are obviously seeing expected ownership on Austin Eckler. We're not seeing heavy amounts of expected ownership on Dallas Goddard, which kind of surprised me coming into this week. Um, I expected him to garner some significant ownership. Why is that? The Chargers are best attacked over the intermediate to deep middle of the field, which is where Goddard has been primarily operating. And we've seen his target totals over the last two weeks after Zach Ertz left uh, finally spike into what we've been waiting for with Goddard. You know, he's seen 12 targets, has nine catches for 142 receiving yards on those nine catches. So that, again, highlights this intermediate to downfield role that Dallas Goddard is being utilized in. We know Philly and the Chargers are both fast-paced offenses. We know Chargers are going to be passing the football. And we know that Philly is highly likely and highly willing to open up their offense aerially. Uh, that sounded weird. Uh, through the air, if they are behind in the game. And that is the most likely outcome for this. And that is for the Chargers to control this game, even though there's only a small spread of only one and a half points. Those are the three game environments I see as ones to attack this week. Um, I love it. Let's finish up uh position by position real quick uh we'll go to quarterback i'll give my just favorite plays and they're primarily has to do with those game environments we talked about and then i'll turn it over to ux and we'll just ping pong our way through these positions real quick so i talked about the miami and houston game if i'm not too excited about tua because of the swelling on his hand sign me up for some 5k tyrod taylor man i highlighted the fact that in Tyrod Taylor's six quarters of play this season, Houston has scored 51 points. That's pretty absurd to think about, right? Because we're so used to this Davis Mills-led Houston team. They scored 37 points against Jacksonville. They scored 14 points in the first half of their game against Cleveland uh, with one Tyrod Taylor passing touchdown and one Tyrod Taylor rushing score. In his first game of the year against Jacksonville, he rushed the ball four times for 40 yards. So that is more than half of, uh, or that is basically the equivalent of a passing touchdown. So I like Tyrod Taylor a lot down at 5K. I really don't have a lot of interest going all the way down to Jordan Love. I know he has been getting some quote-unquote love around the site, but for me, he is not it this week. I also like both quarterbacks in the Raiders and Giants game. And then, obviously, you can't leave a quarterback discussion without talking about Josh Allen. So that's where I'm at this week. Where are you at? I'm at trying to find a mute button. Um, yeah, Josh. So Josh Allen is always in play, right? Like he's he's the highest raw projection on the slate, and the, the, he could smash. I'm going to play Josh Allen. Um, I like Dak Prescott. Um, because I, if I'm if I'm kind of betting against Ezekiel Elliott, by I'm sort of also de facto betting on uh, the Dallas passing game, right? I'm betting that like Zeke isn't going to score two or three touchdowns, um, and so 
I like the Dallas passing attack. We also compare him easily with a just with an objectively underpriced Amari Cooper. Um, and this is another one where you can sort of use that to offset the ownership on Amari. Because Amari's coming in at super high ownership, but Dak's only like six or seven percent. Um, so that kind of helps you offset the ownership on that game by by stacking it. Uh, I like Joe Burrow, where Cleveland is much better attacked through the air than the ground. Um, and I like I think Joe Burrow has a ceiling as high as pretty much any quarterback in the slate not named Josh Allen. Um, I'm happily going to go back to the well on Jalen Hurts. Like he has been a top scoring quarterback all season long. And then just last, you know, last week just flopped. Um, but I'm happily going to go back there. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to, I personally don't do not think I will play Tyrod Taylor. Um, but also I play mostly on like my, my MME entries on, on Yahoo, where the pricing is a little bit different value quarterbacks. Like you don't tend to need the value. Um, it's hard to win if you don't have like a top three or four scoring quarterback. And I think Tyrod can deliver a really strong point per dollar performance, but I don't think he can deliver one of the top scoring games of the week. I think that's unlikely for him. Um, but I like Derek Carr a lot. Like Derek Carr has been quite somewhat quietly carving up the NFL. Like he's, he was the, like, I think he was second in the league in passing yards when I looked it up like a week or two ago and he's still pretty high up there. Um, I like Justin Herbert, like, this is my this again, this this approach kind of goes back to my overall tournament approach, which is find guys who have really high ceilings at low ownership and play them. And so like Dak, Herbert, Burrow, like those guys have, you know, 30 plus point ceilings that are competitive with some of the top quarterbacks, um, but no one's going to be on them. Right. Like and so those are the quarterbacks that I want to lean into pretty heavily. Um, I will probably have a little bit of Jordan Love just based on the premise that the Kansas City defense has been one of the worst in the entire NFL. The Green Bay offense is still full of, you know, two absolutely elite skill position players and then some other solid options around them. So, like, the pieces are in place for Jordan Love to succeed. Um, and, you know, I think that he's not Aaron Rodgers, but could he still have a 25-plus point game because Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones are amazing? Yeah, he could. They, like, normally you think of the quarterback dragging, like, pulling along the skill position players, but I think this is one where having some elite skill position players could feasibly pull along Jordan Love, right? Like, having when you're throwing to Devontae Adams, that sort of, you can make up for a fair bit of inaccuracy um, and, you know, rookie lack of polish when you're throwing to a guy who can catch anything. So I think that's it for me for quarterback. I think it's the, those are my primary exposures. I like it. Let's uh, move on over to wide receiver. Quickly tell me what you're seeing at the wide wide receiver position from a macro lens. Yeah, so it's Tyreek Hill um, as the highest owned receiver on the slate. And then it's a whole bunch of guys in that 5K range. Um, you know, the highest owned receivers are like that we're projecting right now are like Amari Cooper, T. Higgins, Kadarius Tony, Hunter Renfro, Landry, Waddle. Um, Judy's kind of up there. So, and this kind of fits the, the macro theme of the week of like double pay up at running back, pay up at quarterback, which means you can, you, you essentially, you can't pay up at wide receiver at that point, right? You can get Tyreek, but that's kind of it. You can't do double pay up. So I think I like, I like trying to fit double pay up options at wide receiver um, this week. Uh, I actually like most of the value. Like I think Amari Cooper is objectively mispriced. T Higgins has had a ton of opportunity. It just hasn't kind of come together for him in a big game yet. Kadarius Tony is amazing. The only really shaky ones for me are Hunter Renfro, who I think is much more of a floor play than a ceiling play. And, and Jarvis Landry, who I kind of view through a similar lens, like Landry is both Landry and Renfro are unlikely to tank your roster, but they're also unlikely to be the reason you win. 
Um, I like there's some pay up wide receivers that because because of the nature of the construction of the week where people are playing, uh, paying up at running back. And then because of the uh, the position of Tyreek Hill, where people are paying up for him when they pay up at wide receiver, that leaves us with some other expensive wide receivers that I think are going somewhat overlooked. So like Jamar Chase, I don't know if you guys have, watched, have been paying attention, like this dude's been good and he's coming in pretty low on CD Lamb, Devontae Adams, um, Justin Jefferson, Mike Williams, Adam Thielen, like there's like all every single guy I just named is projecting for under 10% ownership. And these and every single one of them has a like legitimately accessible 30 plus point ceiling. And so I want to be targeting those guys, like everyone, like that whole list I just named. I want to be tar- I want to be overweight the field on every single one of those guys. And given their ownership, it's pretty practical to do so. Um I also think there's some opportunity to embrace some variants at the lower end, like uh, people, I mean, Hunter Renfro is going to be the big beneficiary of Henry Ruggs being out. And so no one wants to play Brian Edwards, uh, which I think is, you know, you can play Brian Edwards instead and hope that like his role is the one that expands. Um, no one seems to be targeting the Cleveland passing game outside of Landry, but there is a wide receiver two spot on that roster that's going to be filled with either Donovan Peoples-Jones or Richard Higgins. Um, Rashad Bateman is a play like everyone was on Rashad Bateman a couple weeks ago. Um, and, you know, he got like he had a really short area role and then people played him again. I think last week, the week before, I think it was week before. Um, and we saw his role expand and, you know, his, the box score wasn't there, but the interesting thing about that game was his role materially expanded. Like he was getting a lot of downfield shots. Um, his first week he was getting like shots, right. Targets right around the line of scrimmage. Um, and this week he's getting some, some much more, some much more downfield shots. And so at some point those are going to hit. Um, I also think you can look at like Emmanuel Sanders, who has a wonderful, like deep role with the bills and he hasn't hit in a couple weeks. And so his ownership's projected really low. Um, Brandon Ayuk is really interesting to me where his, he's been playing more snaps and running more routes and the target volume hasn't been there, but now you've got like a banged up Debo who may or may not play. And if he plays, he might be, you know, not fully active i don't know like that's not my generally what i try to do is i don't generally try to predict like when someone's a decoy but i think it's you know he's not him he's not fully himself i think it's fair to say uh which kind of dings his projection for me a little bit and you know ayuk i think is 4100 and so you know that's that's a strong option and i will happily go with guys and the difference for me between like renfro and landry and all those guys i just named is like renfro and landry i think I, I question their ceilings at their prices. They need 25 plus points. And I question if they have that in them. Whereas all those guys farther down, I think they, they all those guys have 25 plus point ceilings. Um, or even for the, for the cheaper guys, like say Higgins still a 20 plus point ceiling easily. I know there's someone I'm missing. Oh, uh, Michael Hardman. Um, people want to be on Tyree kill and the chiefs offense. And we'll talk about tight end as well in a minute, but like uh, there's ba- the chiefs offense has been, largely three guys. I mean, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey in the past game is the the primaries, but Michael Hardman has has really carved out the wide receiver two role there. He's been getting a lot of volume. He just hasn't like broken any big plays and he doesn't, he has one touchdown on the season. But this is a guy who's like, if you go back uh, seven targets, five targets, five targets, 12 targets, like he's carved out a solid role and you can project him for like probably seven targets here. And seven targets at 3,900 for a guy who does have like, you know, game breaking speed and is being thrown to by one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Like that's a, that's a play I want to be overweight on. That's a lot of wide receiver talk. Phew. 
Nope. That was pretty much, uh, when you read the end around, you'll see that was pretty much my ideas exactly. Off of Jarvis, off of Renfro. In coming back to the game environment. So we talked about Devontae Booker. We talked a little bit about the Las Vegas Raiders, how they put up points. Well, the correlated pairing of like Devontae Booker and a lower than should be ownership um, on Darren Waller, like that accounts for probably three of the four likeliest outcomes with respect to that game environment from a game flow perspective. So that's highly intriguing to me. Um, nobody is also going to play both running backs from the same game. We talked about the high likelihood of points being scored in that game. What if majority of them come on the ground? You got Josh Jacobs and Devontae Booker who are expected to carry moderate to low ownership. Um, finally, I'm going to leave you with my low-owned, low-priced slate breaker of the week, and you're probably going to laugh your ass off because that man is... I know this one. Robbie Anderson. Oh, fuck, I didn't know it. Uh, I I thought you were going to say Nico Collins. (laughs) Nope. Nico Collins, I like, uh, I think, a little bit less than JM and what you've seen around the site, but I do like uh, a good deal as part of a game environment stack. But Robbie Anderson, dude, check check this (laughs) out. Yeah, check it out, bro. Listen to this. So he has been hyped for the better part of the last six weeks, right? It has not happened. What is, what is going for him this week? He's playing a Patriots team who we know are going to look to take away the top option on the opposing team. Who is that this week? In my mind, through you know, trying to put myself in Bill Belichick's shoes, that is likely going to be DJ Morris. He's the person who can do the most bulk damage. And what do they want to do? They want to slow the game down and grind out and put their team in a position to win the game in the fourth quarter of the season because that's just the offensive personnel and defensive personnel that they have. So they're going to try and limit big plays. They're going to likely dedicate extra attention to DJ Moore. We have Christian McCaffrey coming back with all these question marks surrounding him. You either play him or you don't. Like, I'm not going to talk you into either of those but for the case of cmc not seeing a full workload who is now like the most likeliest beneficiary uh on the offense if dj moore is being largely removed from the game that's robbie anderson we also have sam darnold who is questionable he was questionable with a concussion he was on the concussion protocol he's off that now he's questionable with a shoulder injury to his throwing shoulder Okay, well, that raises some flags as well. What if P.J. Walker starts? P.J. Walker has a... He's played, like, just over one game in the NFL. Obviously, he came over from, uh, I forget, the XFL or the Canadian Football League. I forget where he came from, but um, he's a seasoned quarterback. What have we seen in his just over one game of throwing the football? He has an 11.6 yards per completion with an extremely low completion rate. What does that sound like? That sounds like Robbie Anderson. So there's this interesting dynamic where like, if PJ Walker starts and CMC is not seeing a full CMC workload, my favorite play from that game is actually Robbie Anderson. And zero people are going to be playing him. I have not seen mention of him once this week, which is surprising because Jayhem has been all over him all season. The rest of the industry has been all over his underlying metrics. I have been off of him because of his ownership. Well, now his ownership is non-existent, and I'm like, wee, I get to go to Robbie Anderson again. Uh, so that's my uh, possible slate breaker of the week. 
Let's move over to tight end. That was a lot. Actually, I, I want to hear your reaction. I, don't even know. I just threw up in my mouth. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, okay, yes, here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, that's right? What I'm going like, for. I feel like we have, like, people have been playing Robbie Anderson because he's been projecting well, and most people build off of projections. And so, you know, Robbie Anderson, he's not been like chalk, but he hasn't been ignored, right? We've been seeing a fair bit of Robbie Anderson ownership. And, like, if Robbie Anderson now falls into the bucket for me, as I think about it, of highly volatile play, right? So cool. Um, I have no issue playing highly volatile plays, but as I keep saying, like my general philosophy is play highly volatile plays at high at low ownership, not high ownership, right? Um, so cool. Let's do that. Um, now we have a chance to play highly volatile, highly volatile play at low ownership instead of high ownership. So I get it. I also, I mean, I don't know if I'll go there, but I, I understand the play. Like, I think there's, it's hard to evaluate when a player might be broken, right? Like, there's nothing to indicate Robbie Anderson is broken other than he has stopped catching footballs that are being thrown in his direction. Um, but there's nothing else in like the underlying data to say, like, there's something wrong with this guy. And so when that's the case, I think you can absolutely make an argument that says, look, I'm getting a guy who I know has upside. Like we know, we know he gets a lot of deep work. He gets, you know, he gets targeted deep. Um, So, you know, why would we not take advantage of the low ownership and play this dude? Right. Like, I think that's eminently reasonable. Um, Again, I don't know for sure if I'll end up going there, but like, I totally get the play. So yeah, I'm I'm on I'm on board with Robbie Anderson. It makes me it makes me throw up my mouth a little bit, but I I get it. Totally get that's, it. That's perfect. On a week like this, if you're not playing like at least if you're MMEing and you're not playing plays that you think would make you throw up in your mouth, like I think you're doing it wrong because the field has so much certainty and and there's not. So, I love it. Uh that was the reaction I was going for. Uh tight ends, Albert uh, Alberto. <laughs> Just, you like that transition just straight into it. Like <laughs> Uh, we have Alberto. I talked about Darren Waller. He's highly intriguing at, you know, 10 to 12% expected ownership in that same range is Dallas Goddard, who I think is highly interesting as well in a newfound role. Uh, the ownership is expected obviously to be highly concentrated on Alberto. Uh, number two, Mike Gesicki, who I think is an outstanding play. There are ways to play him different than the field is going to like we discussed earlier like jm covered in the um what was it the player grid um and then also his bottom-up build podcast uh other tight ends dude i can't i gotta say it i'm not gonna be i'm not down with the evan ingram uh but i get why uh you I'm talked about either. that i hate that <laughs> asshole <laughs> right um yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. Dalton Schultz, obviously, with Blake Jarwin out is another way to differentiate a little bit from that Dallas-Denver game. Um, George Kittle, I think, is an objectively poor play. I don't care, really, what his ownership is going to be. First game coming back with a a lot of things going towards a high rushing attack, so I won't be going there. Um, and then the last guy you got to talk about is Travis Kelsey, right? We have a... Uh, basically... He has fallen off a cliff production-wise after his first three games, so all of the ownership on Kansas City is basically gravitating towards Tyreek Hill. So that's a a spot where Travis Kelsey at low ownership, uh, where the field is likely to be paying down, makes a lot of sense this week. 
over to you, my good sir. You seen anything else at tied in? Yeah. So like the Albert O decision is, you know, he's the the highest projected ownership tight end on the slate uh, by an enormous margin, right? And so that becomes a pretty pivotal, pivotal, pivotal. Thank you, English um, decision point for us to make. And the way that I'm thinking through that is, it's common, you know, when when we see a guy move into a new role um, due to an injury or a trade or whatever, uh, what we tend to see happen is you know, ownership blocks that guy, right? Like, aha, this guy's all of a sudden like a viable play. I'm going to jump on him. And we see ownership congregate and like, fine, um, makes sense. But we often see that happen with guys who have uh, dubious NFL ability, uh, to put it kindly. So like, you know, we see um, Dan Arnold be mega chalk. We see, oh, what other Titans have been mega chalk? God, Adam Troutman was like mega chalk. I think he was pretty chalky earlier once this year. And I remember this was late last year where he was like min salary and like 15 or 20% owned. And he put up zero points on zero targets. Um, So like people often have too much confidence when betting on guys stepping into new roles uh, and they become really chalky because they're cheap and they project decently, um, but they might not be good at football or, or the, or the offense just might not heavily involve them. Um, they're not necessarily stepping into the same role as the the guy in front of them was occupying. With Albert, it's tricky because we know he's really talented and he has stepped into a big role in the past for the for the Broncos. So he's a stronger play for to me than um, most of like the sort of back assumes you know bigger role players that we see out there um, that we encounter, especially at tight end and. You know, even though I think that like I generally don't like embracing a ton of uh, a ton of ownership at the one of the highest volatility positions, I actually really like Albert O this week um, because we know he is a highly talented receiver. We know that the offense trusts him and will involve him. He had some big games last year when when Fant was active. Um, we know that Cortland Sutton is in all likelihood going to be locked up with Travion Diggs, and that's going to be a hard matchup for him, which means that the Denver passing game is largely like Tim Patrick, who's kind of just a guy, uh, Jerry Judy, and Albert. And so really just kind of two primary targets in the passing game. So I like Albert, and I will play him, even though it feels icky um, to, to play a tight end at that much ownership. Uh, I will happily play Goddard in my Philly Charger stacks, um, and I love, yeah, I will, and I will, I love the Waller call because like where people are thinking Renfro is going to be the beneficiary of Rugs being out. Um, but first off, like that's weird because Renfro and Rugs did not run uh, routes that were anything like each other. Renfro is a like short a dot slot receiver, and Rugs was a deep threat, and, and Waller's a tight end. He gets used in deep passing games too. He gets used all over the field. You know, Renfro is not going to suddenly start catching 30-yard bombs, um, but Waller could. So I love Waller, um, and uh, I love uh, the the pivots I love, the kind of straight-line pivots I love that are close to straight-line off of Albert are Tyler Conklin and Dan Arnold. Dan Arnold, because that that team is somewhat desperate for competent receivers, despite having a lot of wide receivers. Like, they just don't seem to like LaVisca Chenault anymore. Um, Marvin Jones is going to have a tough matchup. And so Dan Arnold has been getting... Dan Arnold's been seeing a lot of volume in that offense. Uh, And Tyler Conklin has the sort of best possible, or one of the best possible tight end matchups 
um, against the Ravens, who have been effective against perimeter receivers, but have struggled more in the middle of the field. So I think they're viable, like straight line pivots as like value options. Um, and then Kelsey, yeah, like I feel like this is a situation where we've seen, you know, a few bad games and now people are like, well, Kelsey looks washed. He's done. And like, let's remember, like we we see this every year many, many times where a guy has a bad game or a few bad games in a row. And then it's like, well, this guy's dust. And, you know, like we forget sometimes the amount of variance that's inherent in this game that we love. And, you know, Kelsey, there's nothing to indicate that anything has happened to Kelsey, right? He had three really strong games at the start of the year, and then he's had a few bad ones. That's coincided with the Chiefs offense as a whole struggling. It's coincided with Mahomes encountering, uh, you know, throwing a fair number of turnovers, which is weird. But like all the advanced metrics point to the Chiefs offense still being elite, and I, I don't see anything that indicates to me that Kelsey has all of a sudden fallen off a cliff and is no longer the best tight end in the league. And so, you know, this like I, I talk about this in showdown a lot whenever the Chiefs are on a showdown where it's always the decision of Hill versus Kelsey because um, you really can't afford it's It's hard to play both, especially if you're playing Mahomes. And where I tend to lean is just whichever way the field's not, because I think of them as, as somewhat interchangeable pieces. Now, Tyreek's role has grown this year. And so I no longer think they're purely interchangeable. Like Tyreek's volume has grown. He used to be a guy who got there on efficiency. Um, but I think that the ownership discrepancy between Tyreek and Kelsey is much too large, where Tyreek is the highest owned wide receiver on the slate, whereas Kelsey, at a, at a lower price than we normally see Kelsey, is coming in at like six or 7%. And that feels incorrect to me. So I will happily be overweight on Kelsey here. And then other than that, it's kind of the it's kind of the usual for me where I will play my tight ends in game stacks. Um because I just don't love, you know, I like like Albert's good, uh Waller, um a little bit of Conklin, a little bit of Arnold. I want to be overweight on Kelsey. That's kind of it for me um outside of game stacks. So I'll definitely like the rest of my tight end exposure is going to be buried in my, in my game stacks. Yep. I love it, man. Let's bring Aaron in. See if we have any quick questions. Uh, uh, can we talk about defense for one? Can we talk about defense for one oh, sec? Oh yeah. Please don't play the chiefs. Please don't play yeah. the chiefs defense in tournaments. It's not that they're a bad defense. Jordan love could be terrible, but like the chiefs defense are projected to be the single highest owned play on the slate right now. And like you can't like you cannot be successful in tournaments in the long term if you play 25% owned defenses. Like they could hit. I you know, they could hit this week, but my God, 25% owned defenses. Why? Like, <laughs> please yeah, don't do it. I you're basically regurgitating the end around to me. So I I want you to go read that after this because it's kind I, of funny. Yeah. <laughs> I will do so. I will look forward to that. Yeah, my my top two defenses on the week are in the pay up a variety range, the Buffalo Bills. And that is kind of twofold for me because the likeliest way I wrote this up in the end round as well, the likeliest way for um, the likeliest way for Josh Allen to fail is if the Buffalo Bills defense like absolutely just washes uh, Jacksonville out of the building. So the we've seen it in two of the the Buffalo Bills games this year where you know they goose egged their opponent and Josh Allen had you know sub 20 fantasy points and that is the likeliest way for Josh Allen 
to fail to reach a slate breaking score. So I like the Bills for multiple reasons this week, that being kind of paramount amongst them. Um, and then I think the New Orleans Saints at 3.7 are not being paid the time of day, basically, against a obviously reeling uh, Falcons team. So I like them at 3.7 as well. Yeah, there's a lot of good defenses this week um, to me. There's just like, I don't know what's going on in the league, but it feels like quarterbacks are dropping like flies. It feels like we're seeing more quarterback injuries than normal. And so like, as I go down the list, Kansas City is facing a backup quarterback. San Francisco may be facing a backup quarterback. Uh, Miami, well, sorry, Miami is no longer facing a backup quarterback. Um, you know, uh, what else? Uh, Dallas, well, okay, sorry, Bridgewater's back. Um, Buffalo is not facing a backup quarterback, but they're facing a quarterback who probably should be a backup, right? Like, the quarterback play here is is rough. Um, we've got uh, New England likely facing a backup quarterback. So like, there's just a lot of like, there's a lot of uh, interesting defense plays. I think that, and again, it's not that I like. City is not a bad play in a vacuum, but we just know that defense is so volatile that it's hard to be successful if you're play, if you're playing 25 percent on defenses. So I love New Orleans. Um, I like the Ravens again as a strong pass rush against a somewhat shaky uh, Minnesota offensive line. Um, I kind of like, I mean, again, this is, I, you know, I'm talking, I have a broader defensive player pool, right? Cause I play, I'm playing uh, 150 lineups this week, but I think the Las Vegas defense is interesting as well, where I like, I want to play that game. I want to play Daniel Jones, but you know, Daniel Jones is the kind of guy who's, uh, is likely to score four touchdowns as he is to uh, score four touchdowns for the other team, um, you know, if throw four picks, right? So there's there's a lot of volatility in a lot of these quarterback projections. And so I think that there's, um, you know, there's defensive opportunity. If you really want to get, if you really want to embrace variance, you could play like Atlanta against Trevor Simeon, kind of a career backup guy there. Um, you could play Houston against Miami if Tua is really bothered by that throwing um, shoulder or hand or whatever it is he's hurt. So like there's there's a lot of ways to go, but I think my favorites are uh, San Francisco. If we don't get news about Kyler prior to lock, because that will keep their ownership down and effectively, that would make them a very similar play to the Kansas City defense, but at much less ownership and and as a more talented overall defense. Um, so like my favorites are, are I'm with uh, I'm with Hilo on the Bills, uh, the Saints um, and and San Francisco, I think, are my main ones. And then sprinkles of those other ones I mentioned. Sprinkles, baby. All right. Aaron, do we have some questions that we can go over quickly? Yeah, we do, guys. How is everybody doing here? Um, all right. So, um, sorry, I'm a little disoriented here. Working uh, from uh, the phone instead of the computer today and screaming kids. And uh, I don't know how you did it, uh, Hilo, during the, life. Summer, <laughs> during the summer when you had to do it. And then JM just did it recently. Just... It's tough. Um, all right. Uh, this one's from Gunslinger. What are your thoughts on how to best deal with lots of late news like this week from a process standpoint? Also, can you speak specifically to this week with Jordan Love and Colt McCoy situations? Okay, yeah. We've, we've actually talked to this before um, in this space and how I handle late swap and late news, questionable afternoon players, etc., is building if-then lineups. So toying through, like go through a lineup run with the under the premise that X 
XYZ players are going to be out that are listed as questionable and do the same thing for them playing. And that'll lead you down to a, a, a way to basically pivot off of the late breaking news at a more logical fashion than the field will basically, because the majority of the field will be struggling to, to make those plays and, and in a like struggling to get, you know, I'll use a Navy term here, their shit in one sock. And that's basically like getting all their, all their thoughts down in, in a digestible fashion. So the military is, has the best things. <laughs> yeah, you got to get your shit in one sock, man, because that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> uh, so that's the first piece of that question. Uh, X, I'll turn it over to you from here. because I'm actually driving now. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what you want to recognize is first off, there are, there are differences between um, different sort of like, you know, game time decision situations there are some where the game time decision can really materially change the slate kyler murray being out um there are others where it changes it less and there's also like what the what the field is expecting and you can sort of get a sense of that by looking at ownership projections prior and so like we can get a sense of looking by ownership projections at the field seems like there's a decent level of confidence that kyler could be out because we're seeing um a decent amount of ownership on the San Francisco defense. Not a ton, but like 10% right now. And so if Kyler was, you know, if the if the level of confidence was that Kyler was going to be in, um, you wouldn't see much ownership on the San Francisco defense, right? Because who wants to play defense against Kyler Murray? Um, so I think you have to consider first off, like where's the field leaning on this injury situation? Then you have to consider what's the impact? Like if this player is out, does it open up something that could really fundamentally change the slate? And so with Kyler Murray, it does. There's also a flip side to the Kyler Murray injury situation, which is if Kyler Murray plays, he has one of the highest ceilings on the slate and at quarterback, and no one's going to be playing him. So, you know, there's there's a couple of ways to look at that and say, okay, I can I can not play Kyler Murray. I can just, you know, and he's out, I'll play a San Francisco defense, or I could just ignore it entirely. Or you could say, hey, if Kyler Murray's in, he could be a smash play because no one's going to be on him. When's the last time you've seen a, you know, one to 2% own Kyler Murray? Because if he's active tomorrow, that's what you're going to see, assuming we don't get news before the early slate locks. And so for me, the way I take, the way I think about these injury situations is I want to embrace variants in them because I want to find places where I can potentially get like slate breaking upside at no ownership. And so a story to tell here, I think I've told this before on this show earlier in the year is a couple years ago, there was a slate where the Kansas city chiefs lead back that day was Charkandrick West Charmander. And, uh, Everyone was on him. He was like, he was min salary. I think was, this was when uh, DK's min salary for running back was lower. I think he was like 4K or something like that. So super cheap. Um, and he was going to be like 30, 40% owned at least. And later after lock, uh, Marshawn Lynch for the Seahawks was ruled out and Thomas Rawls was going to be starting. At, and he had, and by random chance, Thomas Rawls was the same price as Charmander. And so... What I did is I went and looked at my lineups and I saw, how are, how am I doing right now? If I have any lineups that I'm really confident are in a really strong spot already, then I'll leave Charkandrick West on them. Um, but for any any lineups that are not doing well, that I think are behind, I'm going to put Rawls on them. 
And I actually tried to lean extra heavy on the Rawls side just because I knew the ownership was going to be a massive, massive discrepancy. And the interesting thing about late swap is that most people don't do it. Um, Rotor Grinders had some data a couple of years ago about the frequency with which players late swap. And it's like, it's it's incredibly small. Most people just don't use it. Um, and so you can get a lot of edge that way. And I think, you know, Charcander Quest ended up being like, I don't know, 35 or 40% owned. Rawls was like one or 2% owned. So the vast majority of the field did not even consider swapping to, swapping to Rawls. And I actually like sort of, uh, Marshall Lynch was questionable. And so I had sort of let myself have a little bit of uh, opening there to consider swapping by, I actually make, I sort of, I overweighted Marshawn Lynch in my builds a little bit and I had more than I otherwise would have thinking that I can, I can make pivots either to Rawls or to somewhere else. And so I ended up just swapping to a ton of Rawls. Rawls ended up having like a ridiculous game. He, he, I think he got like 40 DraftKings points or something, which is just absurd. And at one or 2% ownership and, uh, Charcander West was, you know, like, I think he scored like 10 points. He didn't do very well. And so like that kind of situation isn't going to happen all the time. There's an injury, obviously. Right. But by positioning yourself for that, you're, you're set up so that, you know, you can, you can allow variants to fall in your favor. And obviously like the breaks still have to go your way, of course, but it's better to set yourself up so that, that benefit from the breaks going your way rather than being terrified of the breaks, you know, because like you feel like you're only in a situation where that where variants can hurt you. And so like I wanted to be in a I like I like being in situations where variants helps me. So that's how I think about it. I hope that's helpful. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Next question. This is from uh, B Fritz, uh, friend of the podcast, got his own podcast with us uh, Wednesdays yeah. at noon. Um, he plays a lot of uh, small field, super small field, hundred person uh, tournaments, and really, you know, kind of stacks up um, and tries to secure points. So this is his question uh, this week. I'm on board with Booker over Gaskin, but I want to play Gaskin in a block with Tua to soak up hopefully most of the points in the Miami offense. Is that any more viable? Is the question to play both Booker and Gaskin? Yeah, play them to... No, oh, um, let's see. I'll read the question again. I don't believe that's what he's asking. He's asking about putting Gaskin and Tua together, um, not Booker, Gaskin, and Tua. Okay. Yeah. I would be, so to me, I just think that, like, to me, Miles Gaskin is just an objectively poor play, like we kind of talked about. So for me personally, that would be more viable if we had pay up, like a multitude of pay up wide receivers who like, like if Cooper Cup was on the slate in a, in a matchup where we could project the Rams to be pushed to pass more like that would be a better way of getting the guaranteed points but we don't really have that this week so I guess my my summation answer is I think you just need to take a stand on your thoughts on gas because to me Booker is an objectively better play than Gaskin and in a super small field GPP I want to put myself into a position where my median score is higher than and allow basically the field to be making mistakes. 
Yeah, I'll add that like I also play a lot of like pretty small field tournaments and in those tournaments your objective is generally more about uh avoiding landmines than it is about catching every ceiling play, right? Like you can do really well in those tournaments without having, you know, the the massive ceiling plays uh, unless it's like a huge shock guy who goes off. Um, but like as long as you can just sort of avoid duds. And so in those tournaments, I frequently do use the strategy of pairing quarterback and a running back to capture all the scoring from the team. I, I'm not super interested in doing that with the Dolphins this week because I don't love Gaskin as a play and I don't love Tua as a play uh, just in a vacuum. And so I wouldn't, why would I play them together if I don't like them individually? But that said, if you like, that does not to say I'm right, right? Like, that's not to say that's the only way to view that game or that offense. I'd say if you like Gaskin and if you like Tua, then I think it's viable to play them together. Like, um, I do that. I pair that a lot um, in in small tournaments. I think you could pair Dak and Zeke in a small tournament. I think you could pair. Uh, what other good options are there? I think you could like, I don't, I'm probably going to play Zach Moss this week at all, but like if I was playing Josh Allen in a really small tournament, I might consider Moss. Um, you can like, I just, I, I like locking up uh, off like offensive scoring. And I think that like my general way of playing those really small tournaments is to overstack. Um, so I'll often have like a quarterback, their running back and their two primary pass catchers. And I'm basically just saying, you know, if this team has a good game, my my tournament lineup is almost certainly cashing, um, and if I get just a little bit else right, I have a chance to win. And so it's it's just about trying to remove the number of things that you have to get right. But at least for me, I don't think I'd do the Dolphins this week. But I I, I think the, I think the question you're asking is probably broader than just the Dolphins. And and so I would say that the the way I would think about it is uh, it's about um, you know minimizing things you have to get to go right, which is what we always want to try and try and target. All right, gentlemen, this is the last question. This is from Diggle Sauce. Um, what a name. I love that. <laughs> wondering how the field perceives this. Do they play Jefferson or do they avoid him because of his gut against Diggs last week? Uh, and thinking Humphrey, an elite corner on his own right, can also shut him down. I mean, I can tell you what Jefferson's ownership is going to be, roughly, uh, according to current projections, which is about 5%. Um, Adam Thielen about two and a half percent. So I think the field is largely avoiding the Vikings, um, not just Jefferson. Uh, that said, Jefferson's vulnerability as a receiver this year, or not just this year, sorry, in his career, has been uh, when when playing against press man coverage, and that's the type of coverage the Ravens play a lot. Um, so that's not to say he can't hit, but matchup for Jefferson in particular is tough because not just because of who the quarterback is that he's going to be playing against a lot, but because of the type of coverage um, that he's going to be facing. So for me personally, I prefer Thielen um, because Thielen is the kind of receiver who is much harder to cover. Uh, he, he needs a lot of volume in order to hit, but as significant road underdogs, he's likely to get a lot of volume. Um, the Vikings are likely to pass more than their seasonal average, but um yeah that's i don't know that that's my thoughts on on jefferson and the viking situation yeah guys sorry i had to plug my phone in so i'm actually off of my headset now i hope i know this sounds like crap but i'll answer this real quick before uh with my phone plugged in 
Um, yeah, so the situation with Justin Jefferson, over his career, he has a high success rate against man coverage. He's very good at getting off the line. He's very good at creating separation in tight spaces. Where he has not developed his game so far from watching film and from looking at the digging a little deeper into the top level metrics is he has struggled with shadow coverage that also incorporates press coverage that also uh, basically has a defense that blitzes the quarterback because the combination of Justin Jefferson and um, Jesus Christ, who's the quarterback? Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Thanks dude. Sorry. I'm tired. Uh, The combination of Justin Jefferson and Kirk Cousins against press man coverage against the blitz is uh, a extremely low success rate they have as a pairing. So the underlying metrics say that Justin Jefferson absolutely dominates or man coverage. The underlying or digging a little deeper, you kind of get this bigger sense of how has he stacked up against what the Ravens are going to be doing this week, which is they're going to be blitzing a lot, and that is going to leave their corners in press man coverage. Well, who do they have that's going to be likely seeing the most of Justin Jefferson? Marlon Humphrey, who is one of the top corners in the league in jamming wide receivers at the line in press man coverage. So the strength of Justin Jefferson in those tight spaces is beating his beating his coverage off the line. And he's less likely to do so this week when you consider both the high blitz rates of the Baltimore Ravens and Marlon Humphrey, uh, who is this kind of all-world in-your-face cornerback. So that I think there were a lot of questions about that matchup in particular, and that's kind of where what led me to the write-up in the edge where I highlighted Adam. Um, and it's it's just we have to understand that like I'm already trying to re- condense the overall thoughts in a write up in the edge to somewhere between typically 1,800 and 2,500 words, and that game write up was already going super long, so I kind of had to leave that out and figured out to answer that question here on the podcast. So that's where that kind of all comes from. Hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, what Hila said, which is kind of what I said, but with a lot more detail. All right, Aaron, is that all we got for this week? We are good, gentlemen. Go ahead and take us out. Uh, either one of you here. I know uh, Hilo's in the car. Xander, you did a good job uh, the other day uh, bringing us out. So why don't you bring us out tonight? And uh, good luck. Uh, <laughs> All right, friends. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, understanding the schedule adjustment today. Um, this will, if you didn't catch all of it, this will be up on the Inner Circle podcast feed shortly, and we'll post in Discord when it is. Um, as always, we will be on Discord chatting throughout the evening and the morning as we lead up to lock. Uh, good luck this week, and we'll see you at the top of the leaderboards later. A quick shout out to both X and Aaron for working with me. Obviously, this was my schedule again that shifted. And shout out to you, fam, uh, for hanging out with us again on Saturday for scheduling change. Peace. Oh, and shout out to Todd, guest, our guest star. Thanks, Todd. I don't know if you're still there, but if you are, thank you for joining and sharing some thoughts. All right. See you all on Discord. Peace.